I'd like you to open or to Matthew chapter 1. And as you do that, I'd like to open with the words of Thomas Adams. Thomas Adams was called the Shakespeare of the Puritans. So listen to his words. This blessed Christ is the sole paragon of our joy, the fountain of life, the foundation of all blessedness, the sum of the whole Bible, prophesied, typified, prefigured, exhibited, demonstrated, to be found in every leaf, almost in every line, the scriptures being, but as it were, the swaddling bands of the child Jesus. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samson, David were all renowned, yet are but meant on the by. Christ is the main, the center, whither all these lives are referred. They were all forerunners to prepare his way. It is fit that many harbingers and heralds should go before so great a prince. Only John Baptist was that phosphorus or morning star to signify the sun's approaching. The world was never worthy of him, especially not so early. He was too rich a jewel to be exposed at the first opening of the shop. Therefore, he was wrapped up in those obscure shadows, the tree of life. Noah's Ark, Jacob's Ladder, therefore called the expectation of the nations, longed and looked for more than health to the sick or life to the dying. You can see why he was called the Shakespeare of the Puritans. Now, for our study this morning, Honestly, that says it all. That really, as I was, as I ran across this quote from this Puritan, wrote this in the early 1600s, I thought, boy, he, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm at. And we're going to spend two weeks studying the text in the Bible from Matthew about Christmas here, Matthew chapter one. So if you're not there, make sure you are there. Now we've, We've studied the the Gospel of Matthew in detail in verse-by-verse fashion in the past. And if you're wanting to dive into Matthew, why you can go online and find there on our website all kinds of messages there on Matthew. But let's give our attention to something really surprising this morning, and that is a genealogy. And maybe you hadn't thought that you would ever attend a Christmas service where you would talk about genealogy. But we're going to do that here this morning. Now this is the line of Christ. The line of Christ. And what immediately we should be drawn to is the fact that he even has a line. What is this? He said, why do you say that? Because he's fully God. God doesn't have a line. There's no genealogy for God. And yet here it is. Because he's, he's fully man. And I think the fact that there is genealogy for Jesus Christ should alert us immediately to the fact 
There must be purpose in His coming. What is this? That God would allow Himself to have genealogy. And I'll tell you, there's more here than you could ever imagine. In fact, I'm only going to be able to touch on it barely at all. And I mean that. Now, Christmas is all about the birth of the Savior King, Jesus Christ. We make no apologies for that. And we give full attention to that being the real truth. That is what Christmas is about. And we need this message today just as much as they did back when it actually happened. You know, we live in the Isaiah 9 days, don't we? Where people walk in the darkness needing to see a great light. Boy, it has never been so clear to me. Just yesterday, even my my wife was reading just a few things that came across her way. I don't know if it was through Facebook or something like that. But, you know, stuff flies around in social media. But I tell you, you hear this stuff, and it is there's so much out there that's convoluted. We don't even know how to look at a person who is clearly a man, but is dressed as a woman. We don't know what to do with that. Because we don't want to offend And when they're trying to make you think they're one thing, when they're really the other, you don't even know what to do. And and because that just kind of symbolizes where we're at with regards to what is true. What is the truth? What can we say is truth? We live as a people who walk in the darkness needing to see a great light. Matthew wrote this gospel to make it clear that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He is the truth. In fact, he wrote it to do three things, Matthew did. First, to reveal the King. And he did so with all his miracles. You can read about those in the gospel of Matthew and the sermons that show that he is the King. He was revealed as the king. All throughout Matthew, you can see that. Revealed as the king. No wonder in Matthew 16, Jesus says to the disciples, Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I've been revealing to you that I'm the king. I'd like to hear it from your own lips. Secondly, Matthew was written to show the king rejected. His own people rejected him. The whole earth really rejected him as a whole. And the truth of the matter is that before you became a Christian, that was your story too. You lived a life rejecting Christ all the time, every day. And every time you walked in your own way in disobedience to the Lord and what he says, you were rejecting him. Thirdly, Matthew was written to show that the king will return, that he will return, which I tell you, for believers will be good news and for unbelievers will be horrific news. 
Because it will mean curtains. And so the king revealed, the king rejected, and the king returning. Now this chapter then is really an introduction to our king. Psalm 24, the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong, mighty. And Israel sang that psalm given back a thousand years before Jesus Christ came. And they sang that over and over and over and over And then he came like he did there in a manger. And he came like he did in that humble way. No one saw it. Very few. We live in a day where we need a true king, don't we? We live in a day where the government is shaky at best. Leaders have disappointed many. There are very few leaders that can be trusted. And so we need a king that we can follow that will take care of us. And listen, we have one. In fact, he's called Savior because he himself is the safest place. He is our safety, our refuge. Now what we're going to do is cover the king's anticipation today. And then next week we will cover the king's advent. This morning we're going to study Jesus' genealogy. And what you're going to see is that he was born on time because it was planned. God had all these people in his line for a purpose. The biggest purpose is this. He had them all in this line to show off his grace. Mark that down. And you're here for that purpose too. To display His grace. To help us see that He is a good and gracious King. Christmas is a time of grace. We give gifts. We do. We give gifts. But understand something. God is not like Santa. And we are called not to be like him either. We don't measure it out. We don't say you better watch out. So be good for goodness sake or else. We don't say that. We give because God so gave. See, And that's Matthew chapter 1. Not necessarily trying to throw shade at Santa. I'm trying to help you understand Jesus is the greatest. You understand that? 
we give because of his gift he gave. Now, as we get into our study, we have to understand something about genealogies to the Jews. Very, very important. Now, back then, it was vital to know who you were connected to. So, you know, you needed to know what tribe. You needed to know um, where you came from, who, you know, who your descendants were. And, you know, we get into, the, into that a little bit, I, I think, you know. It's kind of fun. I don't know if you do that little DNA deal where you're trying to learn about your ancestry and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. That's fun. Don't, don't be, you know, too carried away, right? You know, you know, I, I, this whole time I thought I was, you know, like me. It's like very, you know, you look at that deal, you realize, well, I thought I was like this Puerto Rican person, you know, here. And then you realize, well, it's in there, you know. But, it's vital for them to know where they came from. And the reason why is because, you know, you read the Old Testament and there are genealogies all over the place. And, and you remember when Israel was captive and it was coming back. And you re- read about that, it in Ezra. And they needed to find out who were the priests. And so they went back to the genealogy to find out. And they had to establish, can you make the connection so that you can serve as a priest? And they had to know that. In fact, the reason... Listen, the reason Jesus is born in Bethlehem is because of genealogy, right? They went there for a census, Luke chapter 2. In fact, let me make this statement. If you run into a Jew who is expecting Jesus to, or expecting the Messiah to come, because he hasn't come, and they're thinking, you need to ask them how... Can that possibly work out when you don't really have any idea about genealogy these days? It was vital for there to be genealogy so that we could trace it back and Jesus Christ can be clearly the rightful one to sit on the throne. Now, what is so unique then about this genealogy? What is it all about? It is just what I said that is, the main thing is to prove that Jesus has the right to the throne as king. Not only for Israel, listen, but for the whole world. It is different than the genealogy in Luke 3. Luke 3 gives a genealogy about Jesus. But this one goes through Joseph and the one in Luke 3 goes through Mary. So there's your distinction, if you're looking for one. This one shows that Jesus has a right to the throne as Messiah. You say, how is that? Because he is from David. That is David's line. But there's something else I want you to see. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham, it says to David, are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. You see the outline? I love it when they give preachers the outline. Three points. Three points. They're right there. Three groups of 14. And if you study this, you would find that, by the way, there are some missing names. 
I was just reading about this, and it's unbelievable. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. There, where's that guy? And where's that guy? And he said, what's Matthew doing here? What kind of historian is he? Well, he never claimed to be a, an historian with the, with the purpose of showing you all the details of history. Where he gives you the history, it's accurate. He leaves out names on purpose. Because he's trying to make a point that has, you got 14 here, you got 14 here, you got 14 here. He's trying to make a point that you had this group, and this group was similar to this group, and this group was similar to this group. And all of it can tell us and prove to us that Jesus Christ is the rightful king. It's to show Psalm 89 verses 3 to 4 as being fulfilled where it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then in verse 36, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever in his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. How are you going to do that? You have to bring somebody who is a descendant of David. How are you going to do that, O God? Ezekiel 34, verse 23, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. And then Ezekiel 37, verse 24, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will all walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Now, not all of that has been fulfilled because verse 25 talks about the land. But listen, Luke 1 tells us that Jesus is the king to sit on David's throne. But he has to be in the line of David. That's right. Matthew writes this gospel. And he says, he is. But there's one more thing that I want you to see as we get to this genealogy. It shows Jesus is the king, and it shows you and I what kind of king he is. What kind of king is he? He is a gracious one. He is full of grace. John one fourteen, you remember, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, how do you know that he is full of grace? Later in verse 21, Matthew says, Jesus came to save us from our sins. That's grace, Right? He's full of grace, a king of grace, a savior king of grace. And to make sure we understand that, you have to know who is in the line of Jesus.
This line is not coincidence. It is not ironic. It isn't lucky. Listen, it shows us that Jesus was born from a plan put together before eternity to demonstrate God's grace. Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem us sinners. Born in the fullness of time. So this very genealogy represents that. You, and what you have then are three time periods here, okay? Three time periods that He separates for us. He tells us that. Take a look at them, by the way. Each one is represented by a name at the front. Verse 2, you have Abraham. Verse 6, David. And verse 12, Jeconiah. Each name vital to the message of God's grace. And so we see by God's sovereign design three time periods of God's grace that led to Christ's birth. With Abraham, you had the period of greatness. With David, you had the period of decline. And with Jeconiah, you had the period of captivity. With Abraham, you had a time period of the mediators like priests. And with David, you had the time of the kings. And with Jeconiah, you had the time of the prophets. Now further here, In each time period, you see an anticipation of God's grace. An anticipation of the coming king to bring us God's grace. And for Matthew, it was important to break it into three points, three periods of grace. Let's start with the first point there. Number one, a time of promised grace. A time of promised grace. Now, Abraham is the man of promise. Paul makes that tie later in Galatians 3, verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He's the man of promise because he was the man of faith. He was the man of Promise. We see that promise being made in Genesis 12 and then being repeated in Genesis 15 and then being repeated in Genesis 17 and then repeated again and it goes all the way through even in chapter 22 when he is called to give up Isaac. He's the man of promise because he was the man of faith. He believed God. That's what Genesis 15.6 says. God credited him as, as, as righteous because he believed, right? Now, let's go back then in our thoughts here to Genesis 12. We first meet uh, Abraham in Genesis 12. He was a guy who, according to... Acts, he was a guy who was worshiping other gods. He's pagan. And God comes to Abraham and he says, leave this place called Ur and go to a land that I have chosen for you. I want you to be a follower of only me. 
What did Abraham do? We probably wrestled, right? He probably just struggled with that. I tried to figure out, man, what is this? I, I, I can't figure. What, what does he want me to do if you could just give me more details? No, that's not what happened. It just says God told him to do this. And Abraham said, okay, all right, I'll do this. He said, how can you do that? You don't even have assurance that this is a good thing. Oh, yes, you do. You have the word of God. That's all he needed. God says, go. All right. Picked up. Went. Verse 1. We learn about why. Go from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Listen, whatever it is that Abraham was doing before that, it was small potatoes. Because he says all the families. In other words, the impact, you can, okay, there's impact there in, in, in Ur, in your little area there, or you can have global impact. So he calls him, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and this is a promise. All the I wills are the promises. When did God say that to Abraham? He said that 2,000 years before Jesus Christ came, and Galatians 3 tells us that blessing happened through Jesus Christ and is for any who come to him by faith, like Abraham. He said, what is the promise? It is this, that God would give the blessing of eternal life to sinners who trust him by turning to Jesus Christ. That's it. And so Abraham is in that line and Matthew makes a big deal about him in this genealogy. And in fact, Abraham begins a whole chain of grace. You see God echoing this promise through Isaac, his son, right? through Jacob, through Judah, and so forth. And God is forming a people, and eventually He calls them Israel. But the key in all, in it all, is faith in Him for the blessing, right? Faith in Him for the blessing. Now where do you see God's grace in this time of promise? Well, you can read about it yourself, but look at all the people in this. Abraham. He believed God, but he was also a liar. He lied to the people about Sarah, his wife. Isaac was fearful. And that's why he chose his son Esau, when God chose his other son, Jacob. He knew that. the very beginning, he knew that Jacob was chosen. He knew that. But out of fear, he wanted to put his blessing on Esau, this fearful man. 
Jacob is the deceiver. And then you have Judah. So what about Judah? Look there at verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay? You'll notice in all of this genealogy, there are only four women mentioned, and all of them are sinners in need of God's grace. Do you remember the story of Tamar? Judah had a son, and the son married Tamar. And it tells us in Genesis 34, I believe it is, and the son did evil. And the Lord God took that son's life. And Tamar married his second son. And that son did evil. And God took his life. Tamar married after that. I mean, after the second deal, Tamar was given to marry the third son. But the third son was too young, not ready to be married. And so she waited the right time and the right time came and Judah didn't give him to her. Judah was a slacker. He either forgot or he didn't want to gamble his third son with her. Right? I mean, man, something's going on here. God keeps taking my, my boys here. They're not real good, you know, husbands. So uh, Tamar says, listen, you made me a promise. We're going to make sure that you come through with your promise. She lived in this town and Judah heads into this town. And she then pretended to be a harlot, that is a prostitute. And it says that he went to her for services and she concealed her identity. Tamar got pregnant from Judah and later revealed her identity to him in a way that he couldn't ignore. Now, these are not outstanding people, okay? <laughs> this is not a great you know, time of virtue, if you will. Listen, that's in the line of Jesus. A fornicating bum for a father and a harlot for a mother. To a son named Perez. Listen, God is full of grace. He is slow to anger. He is patient. He is willing to save sinners. But that's not all. Look at verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. You remember who Rahab was? Another prostitute. Now she was living in Jericho and Joshua and then his men come around and she housed the spies and she said, hey, I know about your God and I know you guys will take this land and destroy our people because we're wicked sinners. And by the way, she lied when they came around asking about the spies. He said, well, it was a lie for good. It was still a lie. We know that she repented and turned to God by faith. James 2 tells us about the clear testimony of God's grace and saving her. But listen, she's in this line too. What's that tell us? 
This is a time of grace all through the line of Jesus. All the way through it. And what did they anticipate? They anticipated the promise of blessing from God to all who come to him by faith. You could even add one more person to this whole deal. Look at verse 5. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. You remember who Ruth was? She was a Moabitess. Who were the Moabites? The Moabites were a tribe of incest. They came about because of incest that took place. More than that, though, at this point in time of Ruth, the Moabites were a pagan people, and they worshipped many gods. She became a believer, which is so amazing and so wonderful. She's in this line, though. The incestuous line of pagan people. And here she is. It's a line of God's grace, all grace. That's the first time period Matthew wanted us to see. But there's a second one. And let's call this second one, point number two, a time of prominent grace. Prominent grace. He said, why call it that, prominent grace? Because this was the time of the kings, the time of royalty. Look at verse 6. Jesus was the father of David, the what? The king. Now you notice he doesn't call some of these other people king, who they were king. They were kings. Just David. And I believe it's because he wants us to see that this is a time of the kings. David being the, 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 the prominent one. You remember who else was a king beside David? It says Solomon, his son, and then later Manasseh, and then it also says Ammon. You know what all those guys had in common? Great sin. Notice another lady in this genealogy, verse 6, Bathsheba. David saw her on the rooftop sunbathing or something like that or whatever. And he wanted her, and she committed adultery with him. She obliged. Married woman, not only that, it mentions Uriah, her husband. Why? Because David had him murdered. This line is just full of blotches and stain everywhere. Now, You put it all together and where do we see God's grace? David, the murdering adulterer. Solomon, the idolizing adulterer. He had a thousand wives, okay? Manasseh and Ammon, it tells us, were absolute evil kings. Horrifically evil. They didn't just worship other gods. They did the most detestable things. Sending their children to, to sacrifice fire to Molech and so forth. 
Josiah was Josiah the stubborn. We know he was stubborn because he was told not to go fight at the battle of Carchemish and he did anyway and he died there. And you get to the end of this verse in verse 11 and they are all in deportation, exiled in Babylon. And all of that is in the line of Jesus the Messiah. And again, this, this is Romans 4, 5, God who justifies the ungodly. This is 1 Timothy 1, 15, Christ Jesus who came to save sinners. Just incredible when you think about that. And what's this time of the kings anticipate this? Where the other anticipates the promise and the blessing. This one anticipates that Jesus will become our entrance into the kingdom. It's the time of kings and so many of them are ungodly. But notice all the references to a future king. Second Samuel 7 with David and Solomon, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even Daniel all talk about a future king to come. Now why? Listen, because there will be a kingdom and therefore there needs to be a way to get into this kingdom. And Jesus comes and says, it's not through your works. It's not through your circumcision. It's not through your supposed commitment to the law. He comes for a kingdom. You say, where is that kingdom? It is here in in a spiritual way through the hearts of all those who recognize Jesus as the king and bow their knee. And someday it's going to be physical on this earth, but for now spiritual and in our hearts and and it's in the hearts of all those who come to, to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so the Messiah had to have a line that went through Abraham with all that's there there to be our promise of blessing. You know, Messiah had to have a line that went through David, a kingly line for a throne. The angel made this connection, this very connection to Mary in Luke chapter 1. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. That's the fulfillment of Second Samuel 7 and that's what the Lord told David would happen. So to get to the kingdom, it had to be a line that went through all of that stuff there in verses 6 through 11. A line of grace, a line of God relenting and forgiving sin and dealing with some really evil men. And some of them were repentant ones. Who could forget David's repentance? Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And these are, this is a line full of people that had lots of warps, uh, warts and bumps and faults and character. And it's a time of prominent grace. Prominent because these are all kings. I love this. I love this. Read throughout the New Testament on how many times he says, we will reign with him 
because he's the king. Listen, Jesus is into reigning. It's a good thing. We want him as the Lord, as the sovereign, as the king overall, because he's a good king. These are the ones, all these kings that, the ones that someday Jesus had sat on a throne that someday it says that Jesus Christ would sit on a, and it anticipated it. It was a, but what they didn't realize, Hebrews 4, is that it would be a throne of grace. That's the throne. That's the throne that we were anticipating. They looked for some dominance. But Jesus came instead humbly. So the line of Jesus, born on time, born through a time period of promised grace, born through a time period of prominent grace, born through, point number three, a time of what I'm going to call protected grace. And I'll explain that here. Now you can even say shrouded grace if you want. Shrouded grace is fine. And the key name that we're going to latch on to is Jeconiah. I believe that's the one that Matthew wants us to latch on to. He puts it forward. Now remember that there are quite a few names left out of this genealogy. And so Matthew presents this genealogy on purpose this way, okay? Now, he wants us to think about Jeconiah. Look at verse 12. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and so forth. Now you look at this time period, this section here, verses 12 to 16, and and there are a bunch of names, and I realize they're pretty obscure. Who are these guys? Right? In fact, the, the first hundred years, there are a few prophets, but then after this time period, for about 400 years, there's no prophet. No voice for God for 400 years. And so there's just silence, just a big shroud. Now I call this protected grace. Now watch this here. Because God has to protect this line and he does it even though there's not much to it. And nothing demonstrates that more than this guy, Jeconiah. You say, who's that? Well, you first meet the guy in 2 Kings 24. He's the son of Jehoiakim, who was the son of Josiah. In 2 Kings 24, he's called Jehoiakim. And it says in verses 8 and 9, he reigned three months and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But there's more to the story. I find this so fascinating because there's such impact that he's right here. And the guy only reigned for three months. There's more to the story. He was so bad in such a short time that the Lord did something that makes this genealogy I mean, seem like it, it is impossible to recover for any Messiah to come through. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 22. Verse 24, 
as I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, that's Jeconiah, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even though he were a signet ring on my right hand, God says, yet I would pull you off and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you'll die. Huh. Well, that sounds terrible. Again, that's in the line of Jesus. But that's not the worst of it. Verse 28. Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-eight. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Uh Uh-oh. We have a problem here. This guy is in the line of Jesus and he pronounces a curse on this line. How do you get around the curse? I mean, what, Je- what Jeremiah 22 is telling us is that Jeconiah in this line is cursed in, in a way that, that, that Je- there's, it would be impossible for the Messiah to come through this. So how do you get around this? Two ways. Now watch this. Let me give you two thoughts here. Two ways. Matthew is giving the legal genealogy to a Jewish audience, okay? Understand that. They would be wondering, you know that Joseph isn't Jesus' blood father, right? So... Legally, Jesus is the son of Joseph, but not by blood. And, the, and, there's, and Joseph could do that. You could do that because adoption allowed for that. You know, uh, in being his father in a uh, legal sense allowed for this very thing. So, so legally, Jesus can sit on the throne of David because of that. But you have this curse, right? You remember 2 Samuel 7, though, made this throne an eternal one. And and so there's succession. What helps us, though, is there's another genealogy. The one through Solomon and Jeconiah is cursed. So watch how this works out. You have Mary's line in Luke 3. And in Mary's line in Luke 3, you have a son of David by the name of Nathan. And Nathan's genealogy goes all the way through Mary. So both Joseph and Mary are connected to David's line. Mary... is connected through Nathan and therefore makes Jesus a blood relative to 
David. So the Lord had grace to make it happen even with that curse there. It's protected grace. He protects that line. But there's another way to see this. Galatians 3 says that Christ Jesus became a curse for us to take away the curse that we have from our sin. It is a line of grace. It is just tremendous. And in order for it to be that, He had to become our curse. Somebody might have said, you can't sit, you can't be Messiah, you can't be connected this way because there's a curse through Jeconiah. And he might have said, that's okay, I will become the curse for you to remove your curse. The substitute. And so it presupposes substitution. You know, you could go even all the way to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And by the way, it never says that Joseph, by whom Jesus was born. never says that. It always says Joseph, the husband of Mary. He's recognized only as Mary's husband. See, and that's that's his contribution. In other words, his role was to take care of Mary. As Mary's husband. To help raise Jesus. That's pretty big though. Hey, what about Mary? You see, doesn't the Catholic Church teach that she was sinless and, you know, special that way and just a model of goodness and wholesome and per, and just perfection. Yeah, it does. But listen to Mary's own words, because she needed grace too. Luke 1, verse 46. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. In other words... She sees herself as a sinner. That's because she is a sinner. Earlier, the angel Gabriel said in verse 28, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Favored one. It literally, the wording is it's real particular. It literally says, Greetings, graced one. So, graced one. Wow, I like that. Graced one. The angel came to tell her, Mary, you've been graced. Why? Because you need grace. Why? Because you're a sinner. She knows that. That's why she turns around and says, I exalt God, my Savior. This is just what I've needed my whole life. You needed God's grace, Mary, and it's here. That's why that meant so much to her. Beloved, God has protected His grace and He showers it on sinners. Jesus Christ came at just the right time to demonstrate God's grace through this amazing line of people. 
And they're amazing not because of their character, but because of His grace. Oh, do we need to be reminded of that this year? You see, how can God's grace lead a person to Jesus Christ? Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. How do you get His grace? You get His grace when you see yourself as no better than Jeconiah. As no better than Mary or Rahab or Ruth or Tamar or David or Solomon or any of those guys. When you see yourself just like the liar and the idol worshiper and and the adulteress. No better than David the murderer or Solomon the wise man who let his heart stray from all the women that he surrounded himself with. In other words, he compromised all his life. Maybe you have lived compromising your life. Listen, I have great news for you. God is a God of grace and forgiveness. And when you see yourself no better than them and then turn to Jesus Christ on the basis of his cross, you know what you find? Grace to save. That's good news. That's good stuff. Who wouldn't want to have a Christmas like that reflecting on His grace. And all of that was just to serve the purpose to say, okay, now that you get it, now we're ready to talk about Jesus coming into that manger and why He came. And we're going to do that next Lord's Day. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. And we are just no different, Lord, than these... uh, this line of people here reminding us that we need you. We need your grace. Help us to see ourselves no better than these people, Lord. And Father, may we worship you and cherish you and love you. And You know, we look at this. We do live in a time of darkness that needs a great light. And you have provided that great light. I pray, Lord, you would help us to even live by that grace, pointing all others to the answer for them. We uh, thank you, Lord, for providing so much for us. Praise you and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.